Well, good morning. How are you guys this morning? Good? One person's good? How are you guys this morning? Are we good? Awesome. Well, my name is Brad. I'm, I'm the NowGen pastor here, and I am so excited for where God is going to take us this morning as we continue our series Against the Grain. So as we get started, I want to take you back to this past Christmas. Uh, this past December, my wife was flying home from visiting family members in North Carolina. She was attending a wedding there, and it was a great time for her to connect with people that are really important to our family. And she was flying home, and the airplane was getting ready to land at the airport where she would catch her connecting flight. And as the airplane lands and stops, the captain comes on the loudspeaker, and he says, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Atlanta. Unfortunately, the entire airport seems to be without power right now. You may remember this from the news this last December. The busiest airport in the country completely lost power this last December, and my wife was caught in the middle of it. And so they land, and they say, well, we don't know how long it's going to be. We don't know what the resolution or the outcome is going to be, but just wait on this plane on the tarmac, and we'll let you know when we have any updates. And so Sam texts me, and she's like, hey, I have like two hours till my next flight. I should be good. Like, I'm, we're just going to wait it out for a few minutes here. And little did she know that a few minutes actually became five hours on this airplane, waiting to deplane on the tarmac. There was little food, little water available, and eventually she was able to get off the plane, only to enter the airport where it literally looked like a scene out of a Die Hard movie. Right? So it's, it's dark and it's cold, and the only light is coming from the emergency strobes above. It is crowded. There is no food. There is no water. It is chaos. And the good news is, after five hours on this grounded plane and 12 hours in a powerless Atlanta airport and 26 hours of no sleep, Sam made it out alive. She didn't die in the airport that day. I probably would have died in the airport that day because I'm dramatic and not, not great in emergency survival situations. In fact, the fact that I call that emergency survival situation should tell you something. But one, but one of the things that, that I remember so clearly and that Sam has talked to me about from that day of waiting and having no answers and wondering what was going to happen is that she felt like there were constantly these dilemmas that she had to deal with while she was waiting. Like, do I, do I stay here in the airport and wait it out? Do I stay here not having any food or water? By the way, she's 25 weeks pregnant at the time, to add to it. Not having any food or any water, not having any answers. Do I risk staying here or do I leave and try to navigate the chaos that would be trying to find an Uber and a hotel room where thousands and thousands of people are trying to do the same thing? Would I lose my luggage? Would I lose my ticket? Like, I don't know what to do in this moment. Do I stay or do I go as I wait for the power to be restored? And I think as I reflect on Sam's experience in this dilemma, life is full of dilemmas. It is. We have, we have small dilemmas, like am I an iPhone person or am I an Android person? By the way, the right answer is iPhone. Am I a... <laughs> Am I a Coke or am I a Pepsi person? I like LaCroix. I don't drink either of them, or LaCrap, as some people call it. Um, but life is full of big dilemmas and small dilemmas. Some dilemmas are a lot bigger. Like as a follower of Jesus, how do I follow Jesus 
in a culture where brokenness is all around? How do I engage social and political and moral issues in a way that reflects the person of Christ? How do I pursue truth in a culture that elevates agenda over facts? How do I engage the world right now? And, and if you've been with us the last week, you know that we're in a series right now called Against the Grain, where we are working through some of these hard cultural dilemmas that we live with. We're looking at the life of Daniel, and we're looking at this through the lens of justice and what it means to be people who live justice out in our world. And the story that we're looking at today is a very, very familiar story if you grew up in church. The story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Rack, Shack, and Benny, if you are a VeggieTales aficionado. And this story, in this story, these three men, these three boys, face a dilemma that you and I can only imagine. Chances are you and I have never had a dilemma that is, easy, is even close to what these three boys face. And so if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Daniel chapter 3, verse 4. And as you're turning there, I'm just going to briefly set the stage. Like David talked about last week, these Hebrew people are in exile in Babylon. And the, the king's name is Nebuchadnezzar. And in this text, Nebuchadnezzar decides that it would be a great idea to build a huge statue as a testament to the greatness of Babylon. And so he builds a 90-foot-tall by nine-foot-wide statue. And he basically commands all the people that you're going to bow down, pay homage, and worship this statue that I have made, that I have built. So Daniel, chapter 3, verse 4. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Nothing like a high-stakes game, right? Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound, here we go again, of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold. And that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve you nor worship the image of gold that you have set up. This is a significant dilemma for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, isn't it? I mean, they're literally faced with the choice of, do I bow and live, or do I stand and die? Now, David last week fleshed out this idea a little bit, but, but Babylon, throughout Scripture, is a symbol of injustice and oppression. Literally, from Genesis to Revelation, Babylon stands as a symbol of injustice. Even the act of King Nebuchadnezzar commanding people to bow down and worship, make no mistake about it, it is a direct act of oppression towards the Hebrew people. 
The Hebrews were the only people that would have had any dilemma, any moral dilemma with bowing down to the statue because the pagans that were present, part of their religious practice was to actually pay homage to other gods. And the Hebrew people, it's against everything they are, everything they believe in, to worship in this moment. Now, going back to this idea of Babylon being a symbol of injustice throughout the scripture, one commentator writes this about Babylon, that she is a dominating power. She demands worship and allegiance. She blasphemes God. That is, she takes God's position to herself. She seduces the earth with her wealth and luxury. She deceives the earth with her amazing wonders. She oppresses the poor. She enslaves the very human soul. And she undergirds all of this with violence and with oppression. Babylon is injustice. And it stands as a symbol for everything that the kingdom of God is not. Now, when I think about injustice in our world today, I tend to think about specific issues, right? And, and maybe you too. Like when I think about the word injustice, I think about things like racism and poverty. Maybe you think about the injustice of abortion or the injustice of um, the refugee crisis or things like that. But, but before we look at injustice as issues, we have to understand that there is something deeper when we look at a biblical view of injustice. There's something deeper happening. And the core of injustice is this. The root cause, the core of injustice is broken relationship with God, with ourself, and with others. You see, at the very beginning of Scripture, God creates things, right? And he creates them with perfect relationship. Everything is relational perfection. We call this concept shalom, peace, wholeness, beauty. Everything is perfect. The interaction between creation and God and man and man and each other, it is flawless. It is perfect. It is very good. And then Adam and Eve sin, and for the first time, we see sin and injustice introduced into the world. Think about it. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve hide from God immediately. Broken relationship with God. They feel shame because they're naked. Broken relationship with themselves. They have broken relationship with each other as they pass the blame around for who's at fault for this sin. And then the story of Scripture from Genesis to Daniel and Babylon is this spiral of injustice. It kind of just goes out of control, right? We see in the very next generation, brother murdering brother, we see sexual assault and rape. We see slavery and oppression, war and famine and idolatry and all of these different things. Nothing like a light Sunday morning sermon, right? It, this is heavy stuff and it, it should feel heavy because Babylon in some ways is the culmination of this injustice, this broken relationship. Nebuchadnezzar establishes himself as equal to a God, broken relationship. He rips the identity away from the Hebrew people. My friends, this is injustice. Let's go back to the text here in verse 13. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Nebuchadnezzar is one of the most hot and cold people in all of Scripture, right? He's either really happy or really, really mad, and so he is furious in this moment. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold that I have set up. 
Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. Listen to this, but even if he does not, even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. This is a powerful, powerful statement of faith from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as they choose to stand against the injustice that is Babylon, as they choose to stand for restored relationship with God. This is a powerful statement of faith. But what, like, I look at their story and I think, what the heck are these kids thinking? Like, their, their choice doesn't make a lot of sense. Like, they're literally choosing death in this moment. But as we study the, the history of the Hebrew people and who Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are, what we see is this, is that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego chose to be people like no other people because they worship a God who is like no other God. See, as I think about the thoughts of these three men in this moment, they, I cannot help but that they would be thinking of who Yahweh, who God was to their ancestors. That he commanded their ancestors, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not worship or make any kind of idols. You shall not even use my name Yahweh without reverence and awe and wonder. And not only would I think about who God was to the Israelite people, but I also would think about what he has done for the Israelite people. Right? This is the same God. The God they are standing for is the same God who promised abundant blessing to Abraham, who called Moses out of the burning bush to deliver his oppressed people from Egypt, who brought his people out of the fiery furnace of Egypt to a land of promise, who speaks out of the fire at Sinai and says to his people, I will be faithful to you forever and I'm asking for your faithfulness in return. This is the God that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stand for, the God who fights for the oppressed, who hears the calls of his people, and who acts on their behalf. And their faith is incredible. And so going back to the text here, verse 23, says this, and so these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace, then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. Now scholars debate who is the fourth person in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
Some say this is an angel. Others say it's the pre-incarnate Jesus himself. We don't actually know exactly who is the fourth person in the fire. But what we do know is that God did not forget his people in the fire. He did not forget them. In fact, he walked with them through the fire, through the fire of injustice, through the fire of oppression. He was with them every step of the way. And when we look at the narrative of Scripture where shalom is perfect and existing in the garden in the beginning, and and we know that the narrative is moving towards perfect shalom in the end, in the midst of the oppression and the injustice, we see a glimpse of restored relationship, a glimpse of restored shalom. You see, few people embody the words of the prophet Jeremiah to the exiles like these three men do. They embody the spirit of Jeremiah's words when he says, seek the shalom of the place where you are found. Seek the shalom of the city. Like bring God's wholeness, bring his presence, bring his goodness to the most dark and desolate place that you find yourself in. Bring that shalom into the city where you are found, even if it doesn't look exactly like you want it to. Even if it's hard, even when it's difficult, bring his goodness to that place. And so what would have happened if Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had never stood? I don't think Babylon would have bore witness in this moment to the goodness and presence of God with his people. We would not have this glimpse in this moment of restored shalom between God and these three men. We wouldn't have this picture, and it it begs the question for me in my life, what am I willing to stand up for? Who, who am I willing to stand up for? You see, we live in a world of broken relationships. Just like Babylon, everything in our world right now is broken, right? You don't have to look very far to see that there is brokenness all around us. I was scrolling through Facebook yesterday. (laughs) And few places are better to see the brokenness of the world than Facebook, right? Like it's just story after story of division and anger and injustice and oppression. And it's what dominates our headlines and it's what dominates our world right now. And the reality is this, is that when relationships remain broken, injustice is invited to flourish. Injustice is invited to flourish. Babylon is thriving because of broken relationship between God and his people and God and the world. And if we are unwilling to do the hard work of bringing restored relationship to the places that are dark and hopeless and desolate in our world, then injustice continues to thrive. How many of you have ever heard of the term armchair activism before? Anybody? few of us. Armchair activism, this picture like encapsulates it perfectly. It's this hipster guy sitting behind his Mac computer and it says one more status light, one more problem solved. Armchair activism is this idea that my engagement on social media is actually the way I live out social justice, right? And so posting an opinion or posting an article, that's living out social justice. And I think we live in a world right now where justice is dominated by armchair activism. 
And the problem with armchair activism is that it engages justice from a very relationally broken place. It engages justice with little cost to ourselves and little relational clout. It engages justice from a distance, from a very, very relationally broken place, when all I post online is my opinion, but that is divorced from any real relationship. I'm engaging this in a way that doesn't cost me anything. It's as if I'm bowing down to the idol while simultaneously tweeting about how against bowing down to idols I am. You see, the problem is when we engage in justice in our world, it's often separated from any real people who are affected by that injustice. In my own life, I look at this, and I've been passionate for many, many years about racial injustice. I've taken classes in college about it. I've read tons of books about racial injustice. But what I realized in my life is that I was passionate about an issue, but I wasn't passionate about restored relationship with people. You see, my life, when I looked at it, all of my relationships, all of my friendships were completely homogenous. There was no diversity in my tribe of people, no people that I actually cared about that were influenced and affected by these things. And so when I engaged, it was this, I was bowing down to the idol of injustice in my own life because it was divorced from any real relationship, any real stand. And then a few years ago, all of that changed for me. I've shared this story before, but my wife Sam and I have been foster parents for a number of years. And one of the foster uh, babies that we got in was a little African-American boy named, we'll call him Daniel. Um, and Daniel was incredible. We absolutely fell in love with him. Falling in love with a baby is super, super easy, right? He was adorable. But one thing that happened that was really weird and different about this foster care case is that we actually became really, really close friends with his mom, who we'll call Krista. And if you know anything about foster care, sometimes relationships between birth parents and foster parents can be a little bit tense and a little bit difficult. That wasn't the case with this relationship. In fact, we would text his mom, Krista, all the time. We would exchange pictures, we would talk to her about her life and, and what she was going through. She would actually even come into our home to do visits with us. So she would stay for hours and hours. Even after Daniel went to bed, she would stay and we would just develop this friendship and it would grow. And we became really, really close with her. Well, eventually Daniel went home to his mom. And we stayed in contact. She became such good friends with us. We've celebrated birthdays together. We've celebrated holidays together. And all of a sudden now, my passion about racial injustice, well, there's a relationship to it. There's more depth to it. Now when I see issues of racism and racial injustice, there are very real people that I love and that are affected by it. And, and really, this can be applied to any area of justice any area, who or what are you willing to risk for and stand with and stand for in a relationally messy kind of way? Maybe, maybe you really struggle with the injustice of abortion. My question for you is, is the only way that you oppose abortion through a vote? Or are you willing to do the hard, messy, relational work of supporting mothers 
of supporting the poor, of, of going in and engaging in relationship with, with ministries and people that are doing the hard work of this. Maybe you're against the, the epidemic of sexual assault and sexual abuse in our country, but, but privately you're looking at pornography and, and engaging in locker room talk in your life. This is all about doing the hard work of engaging in relationship with people and going to the hard places doing the hard things and taking a stand for the oppressed, the oppressed and injustice in our world. Now here's the good news. We serve a God who is not an armchair activist. We serve a God who is not content sitting back and letting injustice flourish in our world. We see this in the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, where he actually immerses himself in the problems of the oppressed and those that are victims of injustice. We see him step into this and speak into this, but there is no better place where God brings justice to the world than at the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is subtly and not so subtly pointing us to the person of Jesus who steps into our pain, who steps into our brokenness and bears it on our behalf so that we can bring his goodness and his justice into the world. God was not satisfied with broken relationship with you and I, and he did something about it. The cross, the cross is God's justice initiative to restore shalom in the world. I love the words of Paul in Colossians where he describes this whole idea of how the cross is what actually brings justice and reconciliation and shalom back into our world. Eugene Peterson does an incredible job of unpacking this concept in the message. He says this, He, Christ, was supreme in the beginning and leading the resurrection parade, Jesus is supreme in the end. From beginning to end, he's there towering far above everything, everyone. So spacious is he, so roomy, that everything of God finds its proper place in him without crowding. Not only that, but all the broken and dislocated pieces of the universe, people and things, animals and atoms, get properly fixed and fit together in vibrant harmonies, all because of his death, his blood, that poured down from the cross. This is a picture of restored shalom, restored relationship in our broken and hurting world. The cross of Jesus is the foundation for any conversation that we can ever have about justice and reconciliation in our world. It is the ultimate act of social justice. And as followers of Jesus, we can't help but bring that into everything we do as we pursue justice in this world. God has taken the first step to heal our broken relationship with him. He has. And so what do you and I do with that? How do we operate out of that? How do we live out of that? How do we take a stand in the Babylon that we find ourselves in for that repaired relationship? You see, our dilemma is this. Our dilemma is, will we join those who conform? Or will we join him who renews and transforms? Will we bow down to the proverbial idols in our society? 
Will we bow down to comfort and convenience? Will we bow down to broken relationship and injustice and oppression? Or will we join the God who pursues reconciliation with all people, who pursues restored shalom, who pursues true justice in this world? So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's story teaches us that even Babylon, even Babylon can experience this. Even the most broken and desolate and dark places in our world can experience God's hope and his renewal and his restored relationship. And the church should be the best model of this restored relationship to the world. The church should be the best model that the world has of restored shalom, of justice and reconciliation, of wrong things being made right. The church should exemplify this. And so going against the grain today in our culture looks like doing the messy and the hard and the painful work of bringing shalom, bringing God's peace and his presence to the broken places that we find ourselves in. In a week from today, we are taking a group of students on a mission trip to Chicago. And this is the third time that I've done this mission trip. And while we're there, we're partnering with a ministry called Sunshine Gospel Ministries. And Sunshine Gospel Ministries exists in the south side of Chicago. And if you watch the news at all, if you, you know, engage with, with our cultural conversations at all, you know that the south side of Chicago in some ways feels like the epitome of brokenness and tension in our world, right? Like there's always new stories about violence, gang activity, drug use, tensions between law enforcement and the community are high there. Um, there's racism, there's poverty, there's little economic acti activity. In all senses of the word, Chicago feels like a Babylon. And in the midst of this chaos, in the midst of this dark place, Sunshine Gospel Ministries stands as a beacon of shalom for these people. You see, one of the things that they do, I'll never forget this story that they shared with us, is that they bring together all different parts of their community under one roof. And so they will invite law enforcement. They'll invite known gang members. They'll invite moms, mothers who are grieving because they've lost kids to gang violence and police interactions. They'll bring together local business people and church leaders and all of these different groups of people under one roof and they will foster a conversation that brings justice and reconciliation and healing to even this dark place. You see, gang members get to hear about how much pain these mothers have walked through in losing a child. Police officers get to learn how to better love and serve the community that they are in. Gang members are given opportunities by local business people to step out of their gang activity and pursue entrepreneurship and apprenticeship with local electricians and different local business people. And in the midst of broken relationship, this ministry stands as a beacon of shalom where all of these different broken pieces are coming together and experiencing God's goodness and God's wholeness. Does it immediately fix everything? Absolutely not. Perfect shalom won't exist again until the end. 
But even in the midst of chaos, we as people of Jesus can partner with him to bring shalom to the places that we find ourselves in. So I have two simple applications for you guys today as we, as we close. And the applications are this. Number one, pursue shalom with God. Pursue shalom with the God who has pursued shalom with you. His word is absolutely brimming with his heart for justice. You see, justice for, for followers of Jesus is not just this fringe issue, this issue on the edges of who we are. No, justice is the very heart of our gospel. Pursue that with him. Immerse yourself in his word. If you've been around, you know that we are in the midst of something called justice journey right now. Jesse alluded to it a little bit earlier. Justice journey invites us to do this. It invites us to study his word, to immerse ourselves in his heart for justice and shalom for this world. This coming week, we're going to be engaging in something called intercessory prayer. In Daniel 9, there's a powerful prayer that Daniel prays on behalf of his people, that God will bring justice to them, that God will hear their cries and fight for the oppressed. And this week, we actually get to participate in intercessory prayer for the Babylons that we find ourselves in. So that's number one, pursue shalom with God. Number two is this, pursue shalom with other people. Pursue shalom with other people. You see, in a world where everybody has an opinion, few people are willing to live out of example of what this looks like. And so maybe for you, this is volunteering with one of our local partnerships. We have incredible partnerships in our community that are living this out every single day. Jesse, who was up here just a few minutes ago, would love to talk to you about some of those. On July 29, we are going into downtown Grand Rapids, Heartside Park, where there is a large homeless population, where we are not coming down from above and serving them as if we are better than them. No, we are going and we are engaging in the hard, messy work of relationship. This is what we are called to do. This is what we are called to be in our culture where brokenness is all around, is to pursue renewal and healing. So I ask you today, what area in your life can you do these two things? What area in your life do you need to bring some of the shalom that God has pursued with you to your relational world? It's going to be messy. It's going to be hard. I promise you, standing up in the midst of Babylon is not easy. But it's what we're called to do. It's who we're called to be. So I would love if we together could close. I'm going to invite you to stand, and I would just love to pray for us as we engage in worship again together. God, we just want to spend some time thanking you this morning. Thanking you that you are a God who sees the oppressed, who hears the cries of his people, and who moves on our behalf. God, I pray for the brokenness in our world today. I pray for the divided opinions. I pray for the, the war and the racial unrest, God. I pray that you will bring hope and healing and reconciliation to those places. And God, I pray that you'll use your church 
to be the tool in which that happens. God, may we take bold stands today to bring that shalom to the difficult and hard places that we find ourselves in. God, we love you so much. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.